You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Moira Rankin. Rankin was an 81-year-old widow who lived on the Dublin Road in Newry. She was a mother to eight and a grandmother. She was described as a pillar of society, a bubbly woman who was very independent and traditional, as well as a woman of habit. She had a standing appointment to have a glass of sherry once a week with the woman who came to clean her house. Mrs. Rankin did have a number of health concerns, though. Not only had Mora become frail, She suffered from chronic asthma and this resulted in at least two chest infections per year. This is what had happened in December of 2008. She was using a nebulizer and taking medication to help clear her chest and improve her breathing. In the run-up to Christmas, her children had taken turns to stay in the house overnight with her in case she needed anything. Moira was to spend the holiday itself with her daughter Brenda who lived in another nearby town. The plan was initially that Moira would go to Brenda's house on Christmas Eve. However, in the end, Moira decided that she wanted to stay home that night. She was feeling much better, but she wanted to be in her own surroundings that night as she continued to recover. Moira spoke to Brenda by phone just before 10 on Christmas Eve. She was in good form, looking forward to the following day and assured her daughter that she was all packed and ready to go. But when Christmas morning broke, Moira was not answering her phone. This was incredibly unusual for the fastidious woman. Her family quickly began to get concerned. Something was terribly wrong. And after all, the elderly pensioner was recovering from an illness and was not as mobile as she once had been. Moira's brother-in-law called to the house just after 10 o'clock that morning entering her locked house with his set of keys when Moira failed to answer his knocks, and he found Moira upstairs, lying naked on her bedroom floor. Nearby were the remnants of a crucifix. It had been on the wall, a wedding present that hung over her bed, but it was now lying broken near to Moira's body. Within minutes, Moira's daughter Brenda also arrived, having independently also become concerned with the lack of contact with her mother. She too took in the horrific scene in her mother's bedroom. The house was in disarray and Moira had suffered a number of serious injuries. This was no fall. It was clear to Moira's family that she had been attacked. Police were called and the house was sealed off as a crime scene. As news broke of the discovery of the pensioner's body after Christmas, the PSNI described the death as suspicious. Detective Chief Inspector Gareth Talbot described Marie's murder as particularly violent. He told the press that there was no sign of forced entry to the house. However, the back door to her home had been left ajar, and there were what appeared to be signs of a struggle in the living room. There were also no signs of a robbery or anything missing from the woman's home. 
The detective inspector dismissed speculation that there had been a botched robbery attempt and appealed for members of the public who may have noticed activity in the Dublin Road area to come forward. A detailed forensic examination continued to take place in the home. Moira Rankin's post-mortem took place on the 26th of December to try and ascertain a cause of death. Then, on the 27th of December, within hours of the results of the post-mortem on Moira's body revealing that she had died as a result of a violent assault, a man aged 39 and a woman aged 42 were arrested. The press reported that the two knew Mrs. Rankin, but they were not related to her. Later, it would be revealed that the post-mortem had also determined that there was evidence of a sexual assault and Mrs. Rankin had suffered multiple head injuries. On the 30th of December, the period of detention for the two was extended and the following day, 42-year-old Karen Walsh was arrested and charged with murder. Walsh was a pharmacist and owned a chemist shop on Dublin's Georgia Street. She and her husband owned a home on the Dublin Road, next to Moira Rankin. At her arraignment, the courtroom was packed, filled with Moira Rankin's family. Karen Walsh spoke only to confirm her name and that she understood the charges. Detective Inspector John Caldwell told Judge Paul Copeland that he had evidence to connect Walsh to the crime, but that during her interviews with police, she had denied any involvement. At the hearing, no application for bail was made on Karen Walsh's behalf. It quickly emerged in the press that Karen's husband was Richard Durkin. He was a high-profile figure. He was the founding partner at a business consultancy firm and was qualified as a tax consultant, auditor, chartered accountant and financial advisor. In 2007, he was appointed to the Council for the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland, a regulatory body for pharmacists. On the 7th of January 2009, crowds filled St. Mary of the Assumption Church, Dromolan, for Moria's funeral, which was led by the Auxiliary Bishop of Liverpool, an old family friend. He was joined by 10 other members of the clergy. Local primary school children formed a guard of honour for Moira as her coffin was removed from the church for burial. Further details of what had occurred on Christmas Eve at Moira Rankin's home emerged in the first of many hearings relating to the issue of bail for Karen Walsh. During her first application for release pending trial on the 27th of January 2009, Nury Magistrates Court was told that police had called to Karen Walsh's Nury home during the routine inquiries after the discovery of Moira's body. Walsh's version of events was briefly outlined for the court. When officers initially spoke to Karen Walsh as they made inquiries in the neighbourhood, she explained that she had gone over to the elderly woman's home late on Christmas Eve and had brought a bottle of vodka with her. Walsh said that while there, she drank some of the alcohol, neat, from the bottle. She had also visited other neighbours. In fact, the vodka had been intended as a gift for someone else, but that neighbour hadn't been home. Karen had told the detectives three different times for when she had gone to Mrs Rankin's house. Details of the initial police investigation were also outlined, informing the court of the evidence police believed pointed to Karen Walsh as the main suspect in Moira Rankin's death. 
Police said that it appeared that there was an attempt to clean the scene around Mrs. Rankin's body. They also had evidence of a number of unexplained phone calls made from Moira's phone between 7.31am and 737 on the morning of December 25th. It was alleged that the numbers dialed were very similar to Karen Walsh's husband's. They also had a witness who said he'd seen a woman matching Karen Walsh's description sitting on the wall outside Moira's home at about half seven on Christmas morning, smoking a cigarette. After her arrest, a number of bruises were noted on Walsh's body. The 42-year-old told police that these marks had been the result of pulling heavy items upstairs, but forensics said that the bruises were not consistent with this story. Walsh also told a second version of how she had acquired these injuries. The accused said she had fallen down the stairs on the 18th of December in a hotel in Dublin where she lived, and that an ambulance had been called for her after that incident. But ambulance services told police in Northern Ireland that no vehicle had been dispatched to that location that night. Further, police had statements from neighbours indicating that Karen Walsh was known to be a, quote, very volatile person, end quote. Some of them had made arrangements with Moira Rankin that should Ms. Walsh arrive at Moira's home, other neighbours would be alerted and would stay with her until Walsh had left. Karen Walsh's legal representative said that she should be granted bail. He said that Karen Walsh had a, quote, blemish-free character, end quote, and that she had no intention to leave her weekend home in Newry and return to the Republic to avoid answering the charges against her. He also referenced an independent post-mortem that had been carried out, asserting that the injuries to Ms. Rankin's head were in fact external soft tissue injuries, that is, bruises, and said that these could be sustained in a number of ways. The lawyer argued that it had not yet been ascertained whether the injuries had been sustained when Mrs. Rankin was alive or not. Lawyers appearing on behalf of the Public Prosecution Service said that although much of the evidence in the case was circumstantial at that point, there was still forensic testing to be carried out, which they believed would provide more concrete evidence against the accused. Judge Paul Copeland refused bail and remanded Walsh in custody. However, two weeks later, Walsh was back before the court looking to secure bail. At that hearing, her lawyer, Philip McGee Senior Counsel, told the court that police had established no motive for Mrs. Rankin's murder and that Ms. Walsh had no motive to murder Ms. Rankin. He continued, quote, On behalf of Karen Walsh, however, Moira Rankin came to lose her life on Christmas Day It was absolutely clear the circumstances of her death are an immense tragedy for her children, relations and friends. In the end, Karen Walsh and her legal team were successful in their application for bail. £6,000 worth of cash and assets would be required to secure Karen Walsh's release pre-trial. She was also required to hand up her passport, was banned from entering Nuri, excepting when she was required to report to police and was directed to live in Dublin. But Karen Walsh was rearrested on Saturday the 13th of June. PSNI officers had received information from a former prisoner, who said that Ms Walsh had revealed to them that she intended to leave the country should the accused believe that things were, in her words, looking bad. 
In order to do this, Ms. Walsh said that she would secure a fake passport and possibly make attempts to alter her appearance. Guardian Dublin had also informed the PSNI that a plastic surgeon in the Republic had contacted them to complain about Ms. Walsh. Given the police's fear that Ms. Walsh might flee, she was taken back into custody. However, Walsh was released the following Monday, the 15th of June, 2009. When the PSNI made an application to have the bail revoked, Ms. Walsh's lawyers appeared in court again asking for bail, saying that the prosecution had overreacted and were making a, quote, whole hoo-ha about the notion of cosmetic surgery when Ms. Walsh was simply undergoing Botox injections at the Blackrock Clinic, which she had done for a number of years. But a detective inspector from the PSNI said that Ms. Walsh seeking out cosmetic treatment, quote, could well be something major, end quote. Despite bail being granted once more, the prosecution service lodged an immediate appeal of the decision, and Ms. Walsh was once again remanded in custody. On June 17th, the following Wednesday, she appeared before the High Court in Belfast for the bail issue to be heard. A detective outlined that a former prisoner had had a conversation with Ms. Walsh where she indicated she would flee the country if she felt she was going to be imprisoned, and that she had contacts through which she could purchase a false passport. Ms. Walsh had revealed that fake passports could be bought for between £300 and £1.5, and the informant said that Ms. Walsh had a preference for the more expensive counterfeits. A second detective outlined that Gardee had been contacted by a doctor in Dublin. He had provided Ms. Walsh with Botox injections, and she had inquired about more extensive plastic surgery procedures while at the office. When the check that the accused had used for the Botox had bounced, the doctor had googled Karen Walsh's name and decided to let Gardee know what Ms. Walsh had said while in the clinic. It was also revealed at this hearing that the evidence linking Ms. Walsh to the crime now included DNA material that had been found in a sample taken from a broken crucifix from Mrs. Rankin's room. After this hearing, bail was granted once again to Ms. Walsh. However, her conditions of bail were altered. This time, Karen Walsh was to remain resident at an address in Belfast. The file on the case was completed by the PSNI in August of 2009 and forwarded to the prosecution services. But before a trial date could be set, the issue of the conditions of Ms. Walsh's bail came before the court again in February of 2010. Ms. Walsh applied to have her residence condition altered so that she could continue on bail in her home in Dublin saying that she'd been separated from her young son since the residence requirement in Belfast had been put in place. Again, the court was told about the allegations that Ms. Walsh had plans to alter her appearance and flee the country on false documents. Ms. Walsh's legal representative, Kieran Vaughan, said that his client vigorously denied the allegations and that she was now, quote, a broken woman since living in Belfast permanently. In addition, the court heard that the accused's family was now facing financial hardship because they had to maintain properties in Dublin, Newry and Belfast. Mr Vaughan also complained that there had been delays in access to the post-mortem results for the defence team. 
The lawyer asserted that this meant that Mrs. Rankin's precise cause of death was still unknown to him and the rest of Ms. Walsh's defence team. Lord Justice Gervin refused the application for variation in bail, saying that there was a lack of structure in place to enforce bail granted in the North in the Republic of Ireland, continuing, quote, In some respects, she was fortunate to have been granted renewed bail, end quote. After this, a preliminary hearing in the case was held in the Belfast Magistrates Court on Wednesday the 12th of May 2010. There, District Court Judge Amanda Henderson heard a brief outline of the evidence that would be presented against the accused. Ms. Walsh and her lawyers declined to present evidence at that time, but the accused did confirm that she understood the charges against her. Karen Walsh was then sent forward for trial and granted continuing bail with the same extensive conditions attached. I'm delighted to say that this episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends strikes the perfect balance. It's a casual game that's easy to play and helps me to relax while keeping me engaged with its fun and challenging puzzles. There's always so much going on this time of year, and so I'll definitely be sneaking off to play a few levels of Best Fiends to recharge. And with their themed challenges and events, I'll still get that lovely holiday feeling too. Who knew cute little slugs with Santa hats would be so festive? Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to settings, my friends, and entering the code 1932267. We can race through the over 7,000 levels that Best Fiends now has. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. So hurry, download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is also sponsored in part by NordVPN. Making sure I have a good VPN in place is an absolute must for me these days, and NordVPN is my favorite. I absolutely refuse to go on dodgy websites with a gazillion pop-up ads to watch the latest must-see TV, and NordVPN makes it so I don't have to. It's easy to change my location so I can access content from all over the world with one click of a button. That means I don't have to wait for distributors to remember that Ireland exists. And while accessing great content is what brought me to VPNs, NordVPN makes sure that my data stays secure wherever I go. I don't need to worry about dodgy coffee shop or airport Wi-Fi, which is notorious for hackers. That's the last thing I need. NordVPN is the fastest VPN in the world, so there's no buffering or lag holding you back. There's no need to sacrifice speed for security. I can also have NordVPN on up to six devices, so all of my devices are protected. You can use NordVPN on your laptop, phone, smart TV, iPad, and even your router. 
Right now, NordVPN are offering a fantastic holiday season deal. Go to nordvpn.com forward slash mensrea or use the code mensrea to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan and a bonus gift. That's the equivalent of buying a cup of coffee every month. There's also a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you, so there's no risk. Grab NordVPN's holiday season deal. Get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan and a bonus gift. Go to nordvpn.com forward slash mensrea or use the code mensrea right now. After a number of delays caused by a number of changes made to Karen Walsh's defence team, the trial for the murder of Moira Rankin finally began. On Wednesday, September 14th, 2011, a jury of seven men and five women were selected to hear the trial, to be presided over by Mr Justice Anthony Hart. The following Tuesday, the 20th of September, Karen Walsh appeared before the Belfast Crown Court. Liam McCullen, Queen's Counsel, appeared on behalf of the prosecution and gave his opening statement that day. He told the jury that they would hear that Karen Walsh had murdered Moira Rankin after attacking the elderly woman. He said Walsh had admitted having gone to Moira Rankin's house that night. It was the prosecution's case that during this visit, Walsh had sat on top of Mrs. Rankin and assaulted her, describing Mrs. Rankin as fragile and delicate. He alleged Karen Walsh had struck Moira Rankin with a wooden crucifix that had hung over the pensioner's bed and then subjected her to a sexual assault after Mrs. Rankin had passed away. Evidence in support of this scenario, Mr. McCollum continued, included DNA connecting Karen Walsh to the scene, phone records from Moira Rankin's house on Christmas morning, witness testimony and physical evidence left at the scene. Mr. McCollum said that the evidence they would hear would be distressing and harrowing, but it would provide overwhelming proof that Karen Walsh was guilty of the murder of her elderly neighbour. Photographs of the scene in Moira Rankin's home were shown to the jury. Her living room had a Christmas tree with wrapped presents beneath it, and she had set out festive biscuits and mince pies, but the room was in disarray. Upstairs, there was an horrific scene. Moira's body was pictured, half covered with a decorative blanket, and there were signs of a struggle. After this, one of Mrs. Rankin's daughters took to the stand. Anya Brody recalled that she had spoken to her mother on the phone at 20 to 11 on Christmas Eve. Moira had told her that she had said her prayers, as she did every night, and that she was heading up to bed to watch Midnight Mass. Ms. Brody told the court that her mother was upset she wasn't able to attend Midnight Mass that year as her back was sore and she was still recovering from her chest infection. Arthur Morgan, Moira Rankin's brother-in-law, then gave evidence. He had gone to Moira's house after his wife told him she couldn't get Moira on the phone Christmas morning and they became worried. Mr. Morgan described walking into the house and glancing into the living room. He saw that some items were out of place there. It was in a state of disarray, which was very unusual. The witness then went directly upstairs. The first thing he saw was a large antique mirror, which was lying on its side. There were clothes strewn about and a decorative blanket was on the floor. Mr. Morgan went to see if Moira was in bed and then he saw her figure lying on the floor. 
Brenda Rankin, another daughter, said that this was the first Christmas her mother was spending on her own. She told the court that Moira had in fact been due to go out to her house on Christmas Eve, but she was recovering from her chest infection and decided to stay home because of this. Brenda expressed her regret that she was unable to persuade her mother, who she described as very independent, to come over for Christmas anyway. Brenda had also gone to her mother's house on Christmas morning and she'd met her uncle as he was making his way back out after finding Moira's body. Brenda recalled that she'd gone up to the bedroom and saw her mother's body lying on the floor, partially covered with a throw. Initially, Brenda recalled that she'd thought her mum had died of natural causes, but as she moved through the house, she knew that something had happened. And she'd noticed clumps of hair lying all over her mother's bedroom. Brenda wept as she described kneeling down to say a prayer over her mother's bruised body. She went on to testify on cross-examination that she was unaware if Moira had been worried about burglaries and other incidents in her neighbourhood. Brenda could not recall if her mother had been worried about someone calling to her door, offering window-washing services, or feeling that this person had been watching her home. Brenda did remember that Ms. Walsh and her husband had brought over an electric heater to Moira after the older woman's boiler had broken down. The witness also recalled that a few months before her mother's death, Moira had written Karen Walsh a letter to say thank you for notifying the family that the door to Mrs. Rankin's home had been left open. Brenda also noted that her mother bought presents at Christmas for everyone on the terrace where she lived, and that Christmas Moira had had a gift wrapped and ready to present to Karen Walsh for her young son. More of the Rankin children testified, outlining how Moira Rankin was a neat and tidy person and took care over her appearance. They described her as meticulous. She was very careful and particular about the way she dressed and about how her hair was done. Her family were very distressed at how she had been left, noting that their mum would have been horrified at being seen in a state of undress. The court was also told that Mrs. Rankin did not drink spirits and would only ever, very occasionally, have a glass of wine with dinner or a small sherry. There was no question of anyone getting drunk in the house and it would have been very taboo. Paul Rafferty said that at around 20 past seven on Christmas morning 2008, he had heard voices outside of his home and looked out a front window. Mr. Rafferty said that a woman with untidy blonde hair wearing a red jumper was sitting on the wall outside of Mrs. Rankin's house. When Mr. Rafferty was cross-examined by the defence, he was shown a picture of the back of Karen Walsh's head, taken two days after Moira Rankin had been killed. Mr. Rafferty said that this did not match the description he had given to police. The hair in the picture was longer and not frizzy or dishevelled looking. He was also shown a red jumper with grey stripes, but Mr. Rafferty said he could not be sure that this was the jumper he'd seen on the woman that morning. On the third day of the trial, Dr. Kenneth Livingston, a forensic medical officer, placed Moira Rankin's time of death as having occurred sometime late on Christmas Eve or in the early hours of Christmas morning. Evidence was heard from a number of PSNI officers who had interacted with Karen Walsh and her husband in the immediate aftermath of the discovery of Moira Rankin's body. 
Detective Sergeant Cross told the court that he had arrested Karen Walsh on the 27th of December in Newry. Evidence was presented that during a police interaction, Karen Walsh had repeatedly asked if Mrs. Rankin had been beaten. During that conversation, Walsh said she had spent 30 minutes in Mrs. Rankin's home on Christmas Eve and that when she left there, Moira Rankin was in bed. Detective Sergeant Graham had visited Karen Walsh's home on December 25th and he told the court that she had repeatedly asked if Moira Rankin had been beaten. The accused had then gone on to outline to the detective sergeant that she had gone to Moira's house just before midnight on Christmas Eve and she'd brought a card and a bottle of vodka with her. They had sat in Mrs. Rankin's bedroom and Karen Walsh said she'd been drinking the vodka, taking several drinks straight from the bottle during the visit. Walsh said she'd been worried about leaving Moira Rankin as she seemed, quote, wheezy, but her elderly neighbour had assured her that she'd be fine. Walsh told police in that interview that she'd left the house at around half past two. She'd continued that the next morning her husband had told her that something was going on at Moira Rankin's home and that the house had been sealed off. Then, Evidence was presented outlining for the jury that seven calls had been placed from Moira Rankin's home phone on the morning of her death, between half past seven and twenty to eight. That afternoon, the court heard that Karen Walsh's DNA had been identified on certain items recovered from Mrs. Rankin's home, including the litre bottle of vodka that was about two-thirds full. There was also a minor dispute over whether or not the alleged murder weapon, the crucifix, had been packaged and stored properly by police. It had been sent in a sealed box to the forensic laboratory. A forensic science officer, Lawrence Marshall, was questioned as to why the box had been secured with only one so-called integrity seal instead of the usual three. The scientist explained that while it was unusual to have only one seal, This had not led to any damage or contamination to the item of evidence. Mr Justice Hart had asked the witness directly if Mr Marshall had any concerns regarding the integrity of the evidence and he had responded that no, he did not have any concerns, though this was not strict adherence to procedure. The following day, Thursday the 22nd of September 2011, Professor Jack Crane, Northern Ireland's state pathologist, also gave evidence. He said that Moira Rankin had suffered a, quote, multiplicity of blows to her head. This, in addition to 16 fractures to her ribs and her underlying medical conditions like high blood pressure and chronic asthma, had resulted in her death. During the post-mortem, Professor Crane had observed bruising to Mrs. Rankin's forehead and nose, which extended down to her eyelids. There was swelling to her scalp and a circular bruising pattern on her chin. Her right arm was also bruised. Injuries to Mrs. Rankin's face had come from a blunt object. The bruising on the woman's chin was consistent with the shape of the crown of thorns on the crucifix found broken next to her body. There was no bruising associated with the fractures to Mrs. Rankin's ribs, which the doctor said indicated that the injuries had been caused at or about the time of the elderly woman's death. They were similar, Professor Crane said, to the injuries seen in patients who had been resuscitated, but Professor Crane said he understood that there had been no such attempt in Mrs. Rankin's case, and so he had to assume that they were caused during the assault. 
Further, there was evidence of bleeding and bruising, which indicated that Moira Rankin had suffered some sort of sexual assault. However, the pathologist ruled out sexual intercourse and said that an object had been used which had caused the injuries. Professor Crane also noted that a blood clot had formed in Moira Rankin's brain, which he said indicated the degree of force used in the numerous blows to the head she had endured. No presence of alcohol had been found in Moira Rankin's blood. During his cross-examination, Professor Crane said he did not believe that the injury to Mrs. Rankin's chin could have been caused if she'd fallen while wearing the nebulizer mask she had to help with her asthma. The extensive bruising found on Moira Rankin's face would not be expected in such a scenario, he said, nor were the other bruises to her face caused by her hair being torn out. This was, quote, absolutely incompatible, Crane said. The court then reviewed a tape of Ms. Walsh's interview with police from the 26th of December, when she was questioned as just a witness in the case. Ms. Walsh informed police that she and Mr. Durkin had purchased the home on the Dublin Road in November of 2007, but she only stayed there at weekends. During the week, the couple lived in a suite at the four-star Berkeley Court Hotel. Karen Walsh told the female officer that Mrs. Rankin was a lovely woman and a good neighbour. She'd been in the Rankins' home only three or four times in the year or so that they'd owned the house in Newry. However, on Christmas Eve, Karen said she'd called to the house just before midnight and had stayed there for around two hours with Moira Rankin as the pharmacist had been concerned about Mrs. Rankin's breathing. Karen said she'd only left when Moira assured her that she'd be okay. The following morning, Mr. Durkin had informed her about the police cordon that had been erected around Moira Rankin's house. At one point, the accused had said, quote, I thought to myself, oh my sweet divine, what will I do? I was probably the last person there. They're probably going to think it was me, end quote. As the interview was played for the jury, Karen Walsh looked to the floor of the courtroom, though she remained calm. The second week of the trial opened on Monday the 26th of September with the evidence of William Armstrong, a senior forensic scientist. He had examined the crucifix from Mrs. Rankin's room and the bruising to Mrs. Rankin's chin. It was Armstrong's opinion that the bruise and the shape of the crown of thorns on the wooden crucifix matched exactly. He also added that he had not been shown any other item which would account for the strangely shaped mark on Mrs. Rankin's chin. Karen Walsh's defence lawyer cross-examined the witness. Mr. Armstrong said he completely disagreed with the suggestion that the mark might have been caused by a nebulizer mask that Moira Rankin had been using to treat her asthma. Then, the court heard from a forensic biologist, Susan Woodruff. She gave evidence regarding the various DNA profiles that had been identified at the crime scene and on Mrs. Rankin's body. A DNA profile identified on Mrs. Rankin's chin matched that of Karen Walsh, with the biologist noting that the chances that the DNA belonged to anyone but Karen Walsh were less than one in a billion. DNA was also found on Moira Rankin's chest and on the crucifix found in the bedroom, and this, quote, could have come from Karen Walsh, although the sample of material was too small to say with any percentage how likely or otherwise this might have been. Ms. Woodruff did say that of the 11 components in the samples that could be compared with the defendant's profile, 
nine markers matched Ms. Walsh from the chest sample, and ten matched her from the sample taken from the crucifix. Susan Woodruff said on cross-examination by Mr. Irvine for the defence that it was most likely that the DNA found on Mrs. Rankin's chin had been deposited through direct transfer, and it was possible that a kiss could deposit such DNA. Then, on the 28th of September, Karen Walsh took the stand in her own defence. After outlining her education and background, her marriage, family, and her purchase of the home on the Dublin Road in Newry, Karen Walsh told the court that she had called over to Moira Rankin's home late on Christmas Eve to give her a Christmas card. Initially, she had gone to another neighbour's house to deliver another card as well as a bottle of vodka, but they were out, so she had moved on to the elderly woman's home. Walsh said she had been buzzed into the house by an intercom and had followed Moira Rankin's voice upstairs to her bedroom. There, Moira was sitting in a rocking chair, wearing a dressing gown and covered with a duvet. The defendant said she had hugged and kissed Moira, and then helped her into bed and assisted her to use her nebulizer as the other woman was wheezing. The two chatted, and Walsh said she'd sat on the bed while Moira was using her nebulizer. The defendant admitted that she began drinking the vodka while there and had lay down across the foot of Moira's bed. Walsh continued, quote, I know it seems terrible and horrendous now, but it was Christmas time and she was fine about it. End quote. According to Walsh, Mrs. Rankin's breathing did not improve, and so after some time, she had gone downstairs to try and find an inhaler. While searching the living room, Walsh told the court she had debated with herself as to whether to leave Mrs. Rankin or invite Mrs. Rankin back to her house in case she needed anything during the night. Walsh said she had made this suggestion to Mrs. Rankin and that her neighbour had thought about it for a minute or two, but then assured Walsh that she would be okay and that her family was arriving early the next morning. It was Walsh's testimony that she had left Moira Rankin's home around 2am on Christmas morning. While in Mrs. Rankin's home, Karen Walsh said she had not touched the phone, any of the figurines at the top of the stairs, the remote for Mrs. Rankin's stairlift, or a case used to store medication which was found open on the kitchen floor the next morning. Karen Walsh was then closely cross-examined by the prosecutor, Mr. Liam McCullen. Mr. McCullen queried why it was that she had not gone into Mrs. Rankin's kitchen to look for Moira's inhaler when she had initially told police that she had, and when it was arguably the most obvious place to look. The defendant had no explanation for the discrepancies between her testimony and previous statements she had given to police. Walsh said she had not thought to tell police that she had hugged and kissed Moira Rankin before leaving that night, which Mr. Cullen had put to her would have been of interest to the police. It was a question they had asked her directly during her interviews, but she had refused to answer, stating she was following legal advice. The prosecutor then asked why it was, after being so worried about Mrs. Rankin's condition and looking for an inhaler, Walsh, according to her own testimony, had sat down in the living room, eaten a mince pie, and then simply left without saying goodbye. The defendant responded that she had already wished Mrs. Rankin a happy Christmas and hugged and kissed her. 
Then Mr. McCullen put it to Karen Walsh that it was not normal to call to an elderly person's home at that time of night, and that the accused had gone there in order to be able to drink the vodka that she'd brought to avoid the disapproval of her husband. He further put it to the defendant that Moira had told her that she shouldn't be at her house drinking, rather she should be with her son, as Christmas was for family. Walsh said, quote, I have done nothing. I was very nice to that woman. I have all along told the truth about this. I could not have been nicer to Mrs. Rankin, end quote. Questions were also put to Karen Walsh about why it was that she had repeatedly asked police if Moira Rankin had been beaten when they arrived at her home on Christmas Day 2008. Ms. Walsh said that her husband had told her police were treating the death as suspicious and she'd seen this on the teletext news on her TV. Walsh accepted that this was her first mention of using teletext that day and had no further explanation of her choice of words. Mr. McCollum said to the defendant, quote, You could only think beaten if you knew she had been beaten and you thought beaten because you had beaten her, end quote. The defendant denied having punched or struck Moira Rankin at any stage of their time together that night and Walsh reiterated that she, quote, couldn't have been nicer to Mrs. Rankin. Walsh insisted she had no idea what had happened to Moira Rankin and that the elderly woman was, quote, perfect when she left her. On the stand, Walsh had said that when she returned to her own home that night, Karen Walsh told the court that she had expressed concerns over Moira Rankin's physical condition to her husband and the wheezing she had observed. The court was also told that after Walsh's arrest on suspicion of murder, she had refused to answer any questions put to her by police. Her solicitor had read a statement on her behalf to the interviewing officers, saying that she denied any involvement and that her actions had been, quote, completely friendly. Walsh said she had been following the legal advice that had been given to her. The following day, Karen Walsh's cross-examination continued. The Crown's barrister put it to her that Moira Rankin had been critical of Karen Walsh's life choices, saying that she was ruining her life, that she should have been next door with her son and her husband, but instead Walsh was in her home, drinking, in the middle of the night and on Christmas. Mr. McCullen said that this had enraged Karen Walsh and fueled with drink, Walsh had then attacked her elderly neighbour. McCullen said Walsh had punched Moira Rankin and then grabbed the crucifix off the wall and beat Mrs. Rankin with it, striking her on the head. Karen Walsh had shook her head on the stand and replied that she hadn't even seen the crucifix. The prosecutor then put it to Karen Walsh that she had panicked, begun throwing things around the room, took off Mrs. Rankin's clothing and carried out a sexual assault to make it look like a male intruder had come in. He said that Ms. Walsh's story of having gone looking for an inhaler that night for Mrs. Rankin because she was wheezy and so Walsh had to go through Mrs. Rankin's things made no sense when you looked at the physical evidence left in the room that night. Again, Ms. Walsh denied this allegation, saying she could not have been nicer to Moira Rankin. She had been concerned about Mrs. Rankin and her health, given her frail state and recent illness. Mr. McCullen then asked, was it not the case that the defendant had used Moira Rankin's home phone on the morning of the 25th of December, because Karen Walsh had believed she'd been locked out of her own home? This, said the lawyer, explained why the numbers dialed from Mrs. Rankin's phone were just one or two digits off from those of Ms. Walsh's husband, as if she was attempting to dial both his mobile and office numbers. Karen Walsh also denied this outright, 
again insisting that she had done nothing untoward while she had been in Mrs. Rankin's home that night. After the defendant's testimony concluded, the court heard from a former assistant state pathologist from the Republic of Ireland, Dr. Declan Gilsonen. He had reviewed the report of Moira Rankin's autopsy and examined Mrs. Rankin's body himself on the 5th of January, 2009. His conclusions differed from that of Northern Ireland state pathologist Dr. Jack Crane. Dr. Gilsonen said that Moira Rankin had died as a result of cardiac arrhythmia, which had been brought on by the stress from the assault. He said that the injuries previously identified as indicating sexual assault were minor in nature and could have been caused by something like falling onto a piece of furniture. Bruising to her face could have been caused by her hair being pulled. The extensive bruising could be explained in part by the fact that Moira Rankin had been taking aspirin and steroids, which would have made her skin more delicate and her blood slow to clot. The former assistant pathologist also said that many of Mrs. Rankin's injuries could have occurred after death, saying that, for example, the 16 fractures to her ribs may have been the result of someone trying to resuscitate her. On Thursday, the 29th of September, Professor Dan Crane, Crane with a K, no relation to Jack, gave evidence via video link from Ohio University in the United States regarding evidence given related to DNA found at the crime scene. He told the jury that, as the prosecution's DNA expert was unable to give statistics as to the likelihood of a DNA match for some samples, it was his opinion that the results were therefore inconclusive. Evidence then concluded in the case. Mr Justice Hart told the jury that they were not to begin drawing conclusions on what they had heard as closing speeches would be presented when proceedings resumed the following week. The speeches were delivered on the 3rd of October. Mr. McCullen for the prosecution told the jury that Karen Walsh had told a tissue of lies. Though the case against the accused was circumstantial, the evidence against Walsh was overwhelming. Peter Irvine, defending, called into question some of the scenarios that the prosecution had outlined in their narrative of the crime and asserted that the Crown had failed to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. None of the items strewn about Mrs. Rankin's home had Karen Walsh's DNA on them, and the DNA available could either be explained by Karen Walsh's version of events or could not be relied upon, given the samples were too small to determine a match. Mr. Justice Hart began his instructions to the jury that afternoon and completed his charge the following morning. And so on Tuesday, October 4th, 2011, the jury returned with their verdict. They unanimously found Karen Walsh guilty of the murder of 81-year-old Moira Rankin. It had taken them less than two hours of discussion to come to their decision. The defendant did not react as the verdict was read to the court. Her husband, Richard Durkin, who had attended the proceedings throughout, stood outside the court when the verdict was delivered. Court number 13 was full by the time that he had arrived there and he found that the doors had been locked. When Karen Walsh was led from the court to begin her term in prison, she turned to Mr Justice Hart and said, quote, I'm completely innocent, end quote. Mr Justice Anthony Hart warned Karen Walsh that her minimum term for her life sentence, when decided, would be lengthy noting that this had been a brutal attack on an elderly and defenceless woman. 
One of Moira Rankin's daughters, Emily, told the Belfast Telegraph afterwards that her mother, quote, had the right to feel secure in her own home, but because of her trusting nature and kindness, she was subjected to a frenzied assault and an horrific murder. She died alone and frightened, end quote. Detective Inspector John Caldwell, who had investigated the case, told the press, quote, For the last three years, Karen Walsh has told lies. Today, the jury saw through the lies and convicted her of murder, end quote. In the days after the conclusion of the trial, Brenda Rankin, who had given evidence, said that the family felt, quote, no euphoria at the verdict, but rather a feeling of calm and peace that justice had been done. It was also revealed that the nightgown Moira Rankin had worn going to bed on the night of her murder had never been located by police, despite extensive searches of her Nuri home. This unusual aspect of the case had contributed to Mrs. Rankin's home, the crime scene, being sealed by police for an extended period of time. No unauthorised person was allowed in or out of the house for 18 months after Moira was found dead. A sentencing hearing was held on the 25th of October. Liam McCollum told the court that this was a brutal assault aggravated not only because Karen Walsh had been in a position of trust as a neighbour of the deceased, but because she had given a number of false accounts of the night in question and had shown no remorse for her actions. The lawyer said it was possible that Karen Walsh had attempted to revive Mrs Rankin, which could be a mitigating factor. This aligned with the prosecution's case that it had never been their belief that Walsh had planned or premeditated the attack and murder. Victim impact statements from Mrs. Rankin's family were also handed into the court for the judge's consideration. Karen Walsh's lawyer, Peter Irvine, said that he was limited in what he could provide to the court in terms of mitigation, as Karen Walsh maintained her innocence. Mr. Justice Hart said that he would take a few days to consult the sentencing guidelines and review the statements from the Rankin family. On Friday, the 28th of October, Karen Walsh heard what her minimum sentence would be. Mr. Justice Hart said this had been a truly heinous crime, committed against a person of exceptional vulnerability. The judge accepted the proposition that Walsh had not intended or set out to kill Moira Rankin that night, and that she had tried to resuscitate the poor woman. However, she had also degraded Mrs. Rankin by attempting to make it look as if she'd been attacked by a male intruder, by removing her clothing and sexually assaulting her. The judge referenced a report prepared by Dr. Helen Harbison, made from a pre-trial psychiatric assessment, noting that the psychiatric information before the court in relation to Ms. Walsh was limited. The report mentioned a brief psychotic episode experienced by Karen Walsh in April of 2008, that had been preceded by a bout of heavy drinking. However, given that the defendant denied the killing and that Dr. Harbison had not been able to reach a diagnosis, Mr. Justice Hart said it was of limited use in terms of mitigation. Another pre-sentencing report said that Walsh posed, quote, a significant risk of harm to the public due to the severity of the attack combined with the vulnerability and frailty of the victim, end quote. The minimum period before Karen Walsh would be considered for parole was therefore set at 20 years. 
Over 40 relatives of Mrs. Rankin sat in the court to hear Karen Walsh's sentencing, including her two sisters and her daughters. Emily Rankin said afterwards that the family was only then beginning to come to terms with what had happened to their mother, and that Christmas would never be the same again. The family were pleased, however, with the length of the sentence handed down. Emily Rankin further commented, quote, She is a dangerous woman, end quote. Later, speaking to members of a justice committee set up by the government in Northern Ireland in Stormont, members of the Rankin family shared their experience of the justice system and attending the trial for their mother's murder. The Rankins said that the Public Prosecution Service did not keep them updated about developments in the case against Karen Walsh. In order to get information, members of the family would attend every court hearing in the proceedings. During those visits to the court, as the accused was out on bail, the family sometimes found themselves sitting next to Karen Walsh. They alleged that she would take seats beside them at hearings, follow them through the halls of the courthouse or into the bathrooms, or would stare at them. Mairead McElcarney, another of Moira's daughters, said that she felt Karen Walsh was playing games with the family or taunting them. The family told the Justice Committee that the trauma of their mother's killing had been greatly exacerbated by dealing with the legal process and the court system. But even after Karen Walsh's sentencing, the Rankins would still have to endure navigating the legal system and watching their mother's case be adjudicated in the courts. By the end of November 2011, Karen Walsh had lodged papers for her appeal. Public outrage in relation to the brutal murder was further fueled when it was learned that before her trial got underway, Karen Walsh had changed her legal team a number of times, employing four separate solicitor's offices to represent her. As she was in receipt of legal aid, this was at the cost of the taxpayer, and a whopping £15,000 had been billed on the case before the trial even opened. In fact, her numerous changes to her legal team had been a matter before the court, as she had had to apply to have her legal aid certificate transferred each time. A judge in the High Court had noted that it was possible she was taking advantage of the legal aid system for her own purposes, and he had warned her that she risked finding herself without legal representation at all. A number of people believed that this firing and hiring of lawyers had been a delaying tactic on the part of Walsh, and some even called for her to be required to repay the money, given that she came from a family with significant means. Not only did Walsh and her husband have prominent businesses, they owned a number of properties throughout the country. Member of the Legislative Assembly and Justice Committee member Morris Morrow of the DUP was one of those calling for repayment, and he said, quote, It is outrageous and completely unacceptable that someone of her means should benefit from legal aid. End quote. Later, the Belfast Telegraph would reveal that the total cost of Karen Walsh's defence had cost £218,000. This episode is sponsored in part by Wine52. Wine52 is my favourite wine club, and they're so sure that you'll love their wines that you can grab your first case completely free. All you need to do is visit www.wine52.com forward slash men's and cover the postage costs of £5.95, and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door. 
wine to your door. We live in the future, folks, and it is amazing. Wine 52 is a wine club with a difference. Instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers, Wine 52 only selects the best of the best. Their expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and top undiscovered winemakers in the world and bring them to your door. Their magazine Glug tells you all about what you're drinking so you can impress your friends with your wine knowledge too. Each month, Wine 52 send their members three wines which you can customize to your taste by choosing from a case of white, red, or a mixture. After your free case, you'll be part of their monthly wine club. There's no minimum commitment, so you can try it and see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. So remember, head to www.wine5and2.com forward slash M-E-N-S. That's wine52.com forward slash men's to claim your case today. Please drink responsibly. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp. Men's Ray listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. I adore anything that makes my life easier and BetterHelp is the perfect solution to looking after your mental health. What could be easier than an online portal where you can video chat, call, or text with your therapist from the comfort of your own home? And BetterHelp match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs, and you can start online professional counselling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that may not be available in your area. And BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counselling. Financial aid is available and you can send messages to your therapist in between sessions and get timely and thoughtful responses. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's betterhelp.com forward slash M-E-N-S and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using Using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And right now, BetterHelp are offering Mens Rea listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens. This episode is also sponsored in part by our best boys, Manscaped. It's holiday season and it is time to get on it. Manscaped has gone global with the tools to guarantee you'll score under the tree and under the mistletoe. Manscaped is the leader in men's below the waist grooming and they have served more than 4 million men worldwide. That is potentially 8 million balls. And you lovely listeners can get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code MENS. Naughty or nice, it's the season to perform. Manscaped's best-selling product is the Performance Package 4.0, which is at the top of every man's wish list this year, which comes with their lawnmower, body trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose trimmer, and their liquid formations, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner to maximize your bobble grooming routine. And don't forget that you'll receive two free gifts with the Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers, and the Shed travel bag. And Manscaped can also get you a surefire win with their stocking stuffers, the Manscaped Signature Cologne, the Shears 2.0 Luxury 4-Piece Nail Kit, and their Crop Mops, ball wipes for your stanky balls. 
Manscaped's formulations are all vegan, cruelty-free, dye-free, sulfate-free, and paraben-free. Make sure you hurry to their site to ensure these wild gifts show up before the holiday season. And while you're at it, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code MENS. Whether this is for your partner, your dad, your brother, your friend, your boss, your favorite podcaster, get them something that they will actually use and it's almost sure to get a laugh. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code MENS. Be the ballsiest gift giver this year with Manscaped. After being put back a number of times, a date of March 4th, 2015 was set for the hearing of Karen Walsh's appeal. By February, there were concerns that there may be further delays, however. Her lawyer told the Court of Appeal on the 25th of that month that he would be adducing fresh evidence relating to the phone calls made from Moira Rankin's home on Christmas morning, 2008. However, there were issues with securing a telecoms expert, and therefore there were fears that that pillar of the appeal might not be heard. Judges in the court decided sensibly that the date would be kept and as much of the appeal argument that was ready would be heard. They would then review the situation as it related to the issue of the defence's fresh evidence. Walsh's appeal began on the 4th of March, where her legal team argued that the trial judge had failed to properly direct the jury in relation to areas such as time of death, differences in the reliability in the matches of DNA samples, and Walsh's level of intoxication. Frank O'Donoghue, Queen's counsel, appeared for Ms. Walsh this time. She had, of course, decided to change her legal team once again. Mr. O'Donoghue said that there was opinion-based evidence presented at trial, which had been offered from an expert in relation to DNA. Judges are required, when it's not possible to give a probability for a DNA match, to explain the weight to be given to each and how to treat experts' opinion in relation to the evidence. It was the applicant's assertion that Mr Justice Hart had not properly differentiated between the DNA match that had been made from one sample taken and the other samples which were not at the same level of evidential value and reliability. Walsh's lawyer also argued that the judge's guidance relating to the time of death given by the state pathologist had gone too far in asking the jurors to weigh if Karen Walsh's version of events was possible. He said that the instructions to the jury had gone too far in pinpointing the latest possible time of Moira Rankin's death, which made it nearly impossible for the jury to consider whether Karen Walsh's story might be true. A further leg of the appeal outlined in court was that whoever had attacked Mrs. Rankin may not have intended to cause her serious harm, given that some of her injuries were consistent with an attempt at resuscitation. When Mr. O'Donoghue spoke on this point, one of the judges at the appellate court, Lord Justice Gillen, asked, quote, Someone mysteriously went into the house, attempted to resuscitate her, caused these injuries incidentally, and that person hasn't surfaced? Mr. O'Donoghue said that the possibility of that should have been considered by the jury, and the trial judge had, quote-unquote, usurped the role of the jury in his directions related to that and other important points. The appeal also complained about the directions to the jury in relation to Karen Walsh's ability to form intent as it related to her level of intoxication. 
The trial judge had spoken on the issue of how much Karen Walsh had had to drink and said that not only had the defendant said herself that she was more on the sober side than drunk, there was no other evidence to indicate that she was intoxicated to any great extent. And he mentioned that two-thirds of the vodka had remained in the bottle. The judge had therefore directed the jury that a level of drunkenness was not a defence to murder, and so the issue of establishing intent did not arise to be determined by them. Mr. O'Donoghue was arguing that where the facts of the case involve someone being so drunk as to limit their ability to form intent, the jury should be given instructions in relation to this. It may have been that although they were told specifically that manslaughter was a verdict open to them, the jury felt that they could not consider it as an option given the judge's summation. Liam McCullen, again appearing for the PPS, told the court that they were of the opinion that there was no merit in the arguments presented in the appeal and that there had been overwhelming evidence indicating that Karen Walsh was guilty. The following week, the appeal moved on to the issue of the phone calls. Mr. O'Donoghue told the court that phone records held by police were not properly disclosed at trial. Within those records were details of three calls placed at around 10am to Mrs. Rankin's number. Walsh's defence said that they had a telecommunications expert who would tell the court that these calls had been answered. This would undermine the prosecution's case that no one but Karen Walsh had been in Mrs. Rankin's home that morning. Mr. McCollum pointed to the testimony that had been heard from Brenda, Moira's daughter, that she had made calls to her mother's house that morning and that they had gone unanswered. The prosecutor argued that the evidence proposed by Karen Walsh's defence would be of no help, as there was no way to prove that the calls had in fact been answered. The three judges of the appellate court ruled that it was in the interests of justice to admit the evidence, but Lord Chief Justice Sir Declan Morgan commented, quote, As matters stand, the expert's evidence needs to take into account the trial evidence, including that of Brenda Rankin, that she made a call at or about the material time which was not answered. If there's no challenge to that, as there is not at this stage, the expert will have to deal with that as a fact which is an accepted fact, end quote. The telecom's expert, John Tarpey, appeared before the court a week later. His evidence was that when he initially reviewed the records given to him, it was his view that the calls had been answered. He had had a list of incoming calls to Moira Rankin's number, and the calls in question showed a duration when reviewing this document, it was his opinion that the duration information meant that the calls had in fact been connected, that is, that someone had picked up the phone. However, he had since studied the billing records that related to those calls. They had not been billed to the caller. Mr. Tarpey could no longer be sure that the phone had been answered, and felt that on the balance of probabilities, they likely weren't. Despite this about turn in their expert's testimony, Mr. O'Donoghue reiterated that the trial judge's directions to the jury regarding key aspects of evidence at the trial had been flawed, and that this still made the conviction unsafe, even if it was concluded that there had been an abundance of evidence pointing to Ms. Walsh's guilt. And an unsafe verdict meant that there should be a retrial. To conclude, Mr. McCollum simply referred the judges to his previous submissions, outlining the overwhelming nature of the evidence against Karen Walsh. 
The judges reserved their decision, which was finally delivered three months later, on the 25th of June, 2015. Karen Walsh's appeal was dismissed. The judgment held that there had been a strong circumstantial case against Ms. Walsh. They dismissed claims that the jury had been misdirected and said further that the evidence did not raise a case that Karen Walsh had been so drunk that she had been unable to form the necessary intent to commit murder. The charge, given by Mr. Justice Hunt, had been perfectly sufficient. Karen Walsh would serve her 20-year minimum sentence. After the judgment was delivered, Brenda Rankin made a statement. She said, quote, There is a very evil, dangerous person who seems to have manipulated every aspect of the court system. It seems that Karen Walsh has been pulling the strings of the legal system and they have indulged her at every whim, end quote. She thanked the Lord Chief Justice for talking about her mother and bringing Moira back to the centre of focus in the proceedings. Karen Walsh continued in her efforts to have her conviction overturned. Her legal team applied to have her case heard at the Supreme Court in London, the highest court in the UK. They wanted to reopen the issue regarding Karen Walsh's level of intoxication and its effect on intent. It seems that at this stage, Walsh may have been more willing to admit that she had caused injuries to Moira Rankin. But the application for the appeal was rejected, as no point of law of general importance had been raised. In 2019, Brenda Rankin again spoke to the press. She said that the holiday period is always difficult for her and her siblings, and she still gets flashbacks despite her best efforts to be strong and carry on. Brenda told the Nuri reporter that although her mother was missed at important family events like marriages and births and Christmas, the happiness and laughter and smiles in those moments reminded her of her own childhood growing up and the lovely home that Moira had made for them. She continued, quote, We miss both our parents, and it's particularly sad that Mummy did not live to see any of her seven great-grandchildren but it's important to all of us that we pass on the lovely memories of mummy and daddy to their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, keeping their spirit alive in a positive way. For us, it's more important to celebrate the way mummy lived her life, rather than dwell on the way she died. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. Some important information about the holiday release schedule. This is the last episode for the hellscape that has been 2021. I'm taking a publishing break to catch up on things and start the new year with a clean slate. Patrons can expect a number of bonus episodes in their feeds in the coming weeks as I owe you a whole bunch of them. January's episodes will kick off with the first guilt trip of the year on the 10th of January. There will be a shiny new episode in the main feed on Monday the 17th of January. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks goes out to Magpie, Nunu, Siobhan Scott, Daz Richardson, Gabby, and Fanula McGrath. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with my undying love for helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends, NordVPN, BetterHelp, Manscaped, and Wine52. 
Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. I want to wish you all a very happy, festive holiday season and best wishes to each and every one of you for the new year. I want to thank every single one of you for listening this year. It has been a rough year. Things are starting to look up. I have tentative high hopes for 2022, not just getting things back on track, but new projects and events and a whole bunch of other good true crime related stuff. So I will keep you updated about all of those as they happen. Every single listen makes my day. It really does mean everything to me. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much for your support, your listening, your Patreon dollars, the messages you send, likes and comments and everything on social media. It's really hard for me to actually wrap my head around it, but just please know that I am so, so grateful. A special thanks also goes out to Roisin O'Hanlon, who suggested this case for an episode. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hold up. 